We're working our way through John chapter 4. We're at that place in the conversation that's really is finishing up the conversation between Jesus and we know her as the woman at the well. And Jesus had, has just got through, till we looked at this last week, Jesus has just got through telling her that the time is coming and even now has arrived. I'm reading out of the New American Standard, verse 23. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When, the, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I'll read it to you out of the New American Standard, but I'll read it to you later, literally. I am he, the one speaking to you. And at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed. That is, the New King James says they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what are you, what are you seeking to the woman, that is? Or why are you speaking to her, to Jesus? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the people, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is he? And they left the city and, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to another, no one has brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are still four months, then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields. They are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have come into their labor. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into this passage, and we ask, Lord, that you would reveal things to us about you, about ourselves, and that you would help us to hear and be built up by these wonderful words of life. We thank you, Lord, for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So we're kind of looking at the very end of what this woman has to say. And then we're going to look at what Jesus said in response again. And then the disciples are now back on the scene, and we're going to look at their reaction, at least part of their reaction. 
Um, so we're going to bounce around a little bit. We're really not going to go any further than verse 35, although I read further than that. And it's an interesting thing about this woman, because in verse 25 it says, that she said to Jesus, I know, right? I know, all right? So she hasn't really said anything that is really has had a whole lot of substance of truth to it yet, okay? She's still kind of figuring these things out. She's, she's, she's having a spiritual conversation. She's, she's working through these things. I need to give her a lot of credit for that. But at the same time, she, her last statement here begins with the phrase, I know. Now, contrast that to what Jesus said earlier in this conversation, in verse 22 of chapter 4, when he said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. You have to wonder, what did she not hear that? Maybe she, she knew some idea. And it, it's interesting, too, because this idea of, of believing that when the Messiah comes, uh, he will declare to us or he will teach us all things. And compare that, too, with what Nicodemus said in the previous chapter, of chapter 3, verse 2. We, I, we know that you are from God, right? So you have these declarations of things that people know. And we hear this all the time, don't we? People want to tell us what they no. I'll change that a little bit. They want to tell us what they think they know. Or they want to share with us their opinion. I'm doing it right now. Oops, right? I mean, it's the truth, right? And it, it, it strikes me because Later on, when, when this woman, verse 29, when she goes into town, and she asks the question, can, uh, come and see a man, or she tells everybody, come and see a man who told me all things that I have done, which is an embellishment, by the way, if, we, if we're going to take this chapter literally. But that's okay. This is not the Christ, is he? See, she's asking in the form of a question. Could this be the Messiah? The, the, the use of this particular word uh, in the Greek, the word metai, uh, really implies a negative answer. So she was still trying to figure this thing out. But it's funny because she's also talking about the things that she thinks that she knows. Now the Messiah was a Jewish phrase, not a Samaritan phrase. You don't really even see a mentioning of the Messiah in Samaritan writings until about the 16th century. What's interesting is a lot that I read about Samaritan beliefs is uh, much of it is constructed from latter writings. We don't really have a whole lot of writings that predate the time of Jesus that are Samaritan. I don't think we really necessarily need them, but, but it, it is interesting to, to read and to listen to different messages about people 
guys, they're, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're a little bit of speculation going on as far as what the Samaritans believe, although we do know that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, what you can use either name for it. But they didn't use the term Messiah. Now, she could have been deferring because, uh, to a Jewish term because she was talking to a Jewish man, and that could possibly have been it. And that might have been what was going on. Remember I told you last week, they were looking for the Tahib. And they considered the Tahib to be one who would be a teacher, one who would reveal truth uh, in line with the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, that a prophet will raise up one like myself uh, and, and him, you will, um, him you will listen to, him you will, you will hear. The Jews were not necessarily looking for a Messiah that was going to be a teacher as much as they were looking for a Messiah that was going to be a conquering king. So they, they, they didn't quite have a complete picture either. And, and, but nonetheless, she affirms to Jesus that when the Messiah is coming, uh, he will declare all things to us. So that was the expectation. Now, when the Messiah came, did he declare all things to us? In a, in a, in a sense, he almost did. Did he keep a few things to himself? I think he did. No man knows the day or the hour of my return, Jesus says. That's kind of keeping something. Right? There are other things. Um, I, again, I can't wait till we get into heaven and I'm going to enroll in seminary there and I can't wait to, to really learn. Uh, it's going to be embarrassing, though, because of all the things I thought I believed that probably aren't true. But any, that's all right. I'll probably sit next to some of you and some of your beliefs. I'm pretty convinced they're not true either, so that's okay. But that's how it works, right? But we're saved. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb. We can trust in that, right? All that other stuff is, well, without the blood of the Lamb, it doesn't mean anything, and it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. But nonetheless, Jesus says to her, I'm going to read it to you out of the Greek, or transliteration from the Greek. Notice in where it says, I am he, Notice that the word he is in italics in most of your Bibles. Maybe you don't have a Bible that does that. Why? Because it's not in the original text. He didn't say I am he. He said in the Greek, ego eme. That's what he said in the Greek, which means I am. Basically, what he said in the Greek literally is I am who speak to you. Or I am the one speaking to you. So he is declaring himself to be the Messiah. But he's declaring himself to be much more than perhaps her understanding of the Messiah. So the Jews kind of battled back and forth about whether the Messiah would be divine or not. Some of them believed he would. Some of them were not really sure. Um, but this is an important theological theme in the book of John, this, this phrase, I am. 
because it is the self. Jesus uses it in other passages in the book of John, and it's really in a, a self-identity, a self-identifying uh, uh, vehicle, really, for for who he is, referring to his nature. Now, most of the time, when you see the phrase "ego eme" or "I am" in the book of John, it's accompanied with a theme of description. For instance, John six thirty-five: "I am the bread of life." I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. I am the door of the sheep, John 10, 7. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 14. Or I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. But in a few places, it's used without a description. I'll give them to you really briefly. John 6, 20. John 8, 58. John 8, 58. And then he also uses it in John 18, 5. What he is doing in using that phrase, I am, is he is making a confession or a declaration that he is that divine human presence in front of the people that he's speaking to. Now, why do I say that? Remember Moses at the burning bush? I'm not gonna, we're not gonna we're not gonna turn there, don't have time. All right. But Moses is told by God to go set my people free, and Moses doesn't want to do it. I don't necessarily now maybe he had a foresight of what that really entailed. I doubt it actually, but nonetheless, he didn't want to do it. And so he's coming up with all these lame excuses. That God is not buying. He even tells God, why don't you go find somebody else? Really, is what he essentially says. But he says, well, what's your name? I don't even know your name. Now, who's the burning bush? He's talking to a burning bush. That's a, a manifestation of God. And the burning bush, God says, tell him, I am that I am has sent you. Tell them, I am has sent you. So when Jesus in, in John, now I think all those other passages that I just gave you that have descriptors, but particularly in John 6, 20, John 8, 58, John 18, 5, when Jesus is saying, I am, because I think it's John 6, it says, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be the voice of the burning bush. It is a claim to deity. It is a strong claim to deity. So much so that in, the, in those John 6, but in John 8 particularly, the Jews understand what he's saying. And why do, how do we know that they understood what he was saying? Because they took up stones to stone him because him, in their mind, being a man, claimed to be God. They understood it was a claim to deity. He's claiming, this is what the first direct claim of his deity that comes out of his mouth in the Gospel of John. And remember, this is very early in the Gospel ministry. This is right before somewhere around the middle part of Mark chapter 1. And he tells this woman, 
I am the one speaking to you. You know what I find fascinating about this? There's not any kind of response recorded. We don't, if she says something, it's not written down. Why do you think that's the case? I have no idea, okay? I have no idea. See, there's another thing that God is kind of like, okay, there's, I think there's something to this. Why in the world did she leave the water pot and run back to the city? Those things weren't cheap, right? I don't have a good answer for that either. But at that point, it's, all, it's really strange to me because you could almost read it, okay, let's take a little bit of liberty. It could be that the disciples are all of a sudden when they show up, they're kind of interrupting. Possibly. Maybe. Don't know for sure. Doesn't say. But it's kind of abrupt, isn't it? I am the one speaking to you. And at that point, his disciples came. And they were amazed that he was speaking to a woman. I find the disciples' reaction here incredible. And that's where I'm going to camp out on and finish this morning. I, I had somebody ask me a question. I thought it was a good question. Why did, didn't they confront Jesus? Later on, they do, Right? Perhaps it was, and I don't have a good answer for that, so I can speculate. Can I speculate a little bit, right? Well, perhaps because they were still new and they didn't have that much familiarity and because later on, you know, what, what, what's Peter? Far be it from you, Lord. Remember that? When Jesus talks about going to the cross and dying and far be it from you, Lord, which that's like an oxymoron, Right? Not so, Lord, Peter says in another passage. That, that is an oxymoron. They didn't challenge him here. It's interesting. Perhaps because they did not have that sense of familiarity yet. It could have been a Holy Spirit moment to where they were so marveled and they were so amazed they didn't know what else to say. You ever been? No, of course, none of you have ever been there, right? Right. Of course we have. Because Jesus is clearly breaking normal customs. I already touched on that, but I have a verse that will upset you that I'm going to read to you. It's actually from the Mishnah, okay? So it's not really a verse. It's from the book of Abbot. Um, out of the Mishnah, Abbot 1.5. Um, ladies, don't be upset. I'm just reading what was written. And it says here... Um, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna, which is hell. That was what they believed. I'm almost thinking of that cigarette commercial we've come a long way baby right <laughs> i can't even remember the name of the cigarettes but anyway um some women's cigarette i don't know my my sister smoked them for a while thank you <laughs> ding 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 virginia slims okay uh, now that we've 
Let's regress or regroup. But that was the attitude toward women. And a Jew wouldn't normally talk to a woman in public, wouldn't even normally talk to their wife in public. Again, teaching the traditions of men as the commandments of God, Jesus said. But nonetheless, they're, they're, they're marveling. They're in shock. They're amazed. No one spoke to the woman. No one spoke to Jesus. And in the meantime, this woman leaves. And she runs back into town and says, come and see a man. We'll, we'll, we'll. Who's told me everything I've done, is this not the Christ? And they leave the city and they're going to come and see him. They're going to check this thing out for themselves. I have a suspicion, although the scripture does not tell us, I wonder if John the Baptist hadn't gone through this town. It is a possibility. We read earlier that he was up in this region continuing his ministry after revealing the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It's possible. But the thing about the disciples is, is and it, it's kind of funny because I think often we kind of hold the disciples in, in, in kind of a less than favorable light because how often they didn't get it. And they didn't get it. I mean, a lot of times they didn't get it. They didn't get it all the way up to the time of the cross. They didn't get it even after the burial. They didn't get it until they saw a resurrected Christ. But what's interesting here is, is, is perhaps it's easier to identify that they didn't get it than it is for us to identify when we don't get it. It's a whole lot easier to make fun of Peter, isn't it? I mean, he gives us ample material, does he not? It's a whole lot harder to maybe hold ourselves to the same level of accountability. But you know, one of the things that I think we, we forget about them at times is that in this passage and in other passages, they start to talk among themselves. Now, that tells me that they were more hungry and more thirsty for righteousness' sake than times that we actually give them credit for. It tells us in this passage that they began reasoning among themselves. Now, that was, we've, let's not forget, that was a very Jewish thing to do. It's called a midrash. Remember what I've told you about the Midrash? You guys know about the Midrash. You put 10 Jews in a room and you end up with what? 12 different opinions, right? Unless I'm in there, then you end up with 15. But anyway. That was a normal Jewish practice in the synagogues where they would discuss these things among themselves. Now, granted, they had the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God in the flesh, right in their midst, and yet they consulted with each other. They defaulted to their norm. 
what they normally did. That's how they did church. They defaulted to their norms, not recognizing the incredible person of God Almighty in the flesh in front of them. Boy, I bet you they would love to have some of these days back. I would have. I would have. I would have looked back on my time with, if I was a disciple with Jesus, with him in the flesh. I would have like, can we do this again? Can I do this again knowing what I know now? But it takes what it takes, guys, right? It takes what it takes. And not everybody is as biblically astute as you are. Huh. Some of you got it. See, the thing is, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 118, he, ha- he hits on this where God speaks and God says, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's an invitation to have a dialogue with God. That's an invitation to have an exchange with God about who he is, about who you are, about what you believe about him. To reason, to to come together and, and to work through some of these things. And they show up and they, they, they don't know what else to do. So, you know, the, you can tell they have some very strong Jewish mothers. The disciples did. Because what's really, what, finally, what do they say to Jesus? Eat something. You got to eat. You got to sit down and eat. You must be hungry. Sit down and eat. That's what they're doing, essentially, right? They're taking on the behavior of their Jewish mother, no doubt. Well, what's funny about this is, it's not funny, but, I, but Jesus says, my food. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, they're thinking materially. They're thinking, what, did somebody, did somebody head over to McDonald's for him? Right? Did he get someone, you know, uh, wouldn't be a cheeseburger, though. That wouldn't be kosher, by the way. But anyway, um, They're thinking materially. And he's speaking spiritually about his spiritual food. The thing is, in this particular little instance about the bit with the food, right? Not only do they misunderstand him, but it's an indicator that they need to learn, that they need to discern. They need to learn how to discern. They need to learn how to hear. And they need to learn how to think spiritually rather than materially. It's an incredible learning opportunity if we can use a very politically correct term, okay? They need to learn how to hear spiritually, how to discern spiritually, and how to think spiritually. Because as I brought up last week, and I touched on this even again on Wednesday night, 
Our calling is a very different calling than that of the world. I'm going to probably jump into this a little bit more toward the end. But, but we need to realize that. And, and part of the sanctify, sanctifying process, that is conforming you into the image of Christ, is that you learn to hear, you learn to discern, and you learn to think on a spiritual level. Let me make it even easier. You learn to hear, you learn to discern, you learn to think like Jesus. That's what our calling is as his followers. And the fact that, they, okay, again, this is early in the ministry of Jesus, so the fact that they didn't get it right away gives me a whole lot of hope and, and, and um, a whole lot of hope and a whole lot of confidence that he who is, uh, he who began a good work in us, Philippians chapter 1, will be faithful to complete it. It's just that completion process that isn't always so comfortable, right? It can become difficult at times. They're asking questions among themselves, or they're saying to one another, as the New American Standard said. See, there are, I, I love this because a disciple, the, 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 the the term in the Greek for disciple essentially means a learner, one who learns. And we are disciples of Christ. We are learners of Christ. And, and you're not going to learn if you don't ask questions. Isn't that true? Unless you already know it all. But you're not going to learn unless you ask questions. So the, the problem with some folks is that they, and they would tell you, they would tell you, they would tell you that they don't know it all. But in listening to them speak, they never ask a question. They always want to share what they already believe to be true. See, we, hopefully we always have a question. Hopefully we always, we, 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 always, we look at a passage and, and, and have that desire to want to go just a little bit further. Just to, to, to dip our toe in a little bit deeper into the pond, so to speak. Just to gain some further understanding. And then, of course, the, the problem is about all that. You, you learn a bunch of stuff, and then all of a sudden you hit your 60s and 70s and you forget half of it, you know. And, and so you've got to keep relearning, you know. Um, The fact that they are asking questions, the fact that they are learners to begin with, should tell us that they haven't arrived yet. And I think that should tell us as disciples that we have not arrived yet either. And yet, as a learner, to continue to press into the things of God, to continue to ask questions. Um, I'll be honest with you, though. At, at times, I'm not nearly as bother, bothered about the things I have questions about as I am the things I think I already know. Because then I 
I have a higher level of accountability or responsibility to those things. And so Jesus tells them that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I'm going to skip over verse 35 and following. And we'll come, probably come back to that next week. But here's what really struck me. The woman is in town. She's telling everybody in verse 39, he told me all the things that I have done. And it says, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his word. Now, this is, the, this is key. I want you guys to get this. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. They had a full conversion. They had full conversion with understanding. They were no longer looking for the Tahib. They recognized that the Jewish Messiah was the Savior of the world. And he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. They figured this out. He was with them two days and they heard his word. They had enough of, of, of a belief that was probably fueled by curiosity that they left what they were doing in town and went down to the well and went and checked this guy out. A little bit of a belief, not a full belief. But after they heard him, they said, we, we, we now believe no longer because of what you said, but we have heard for ourselves. It's no longer because of what you've said, but we have heard for ourselves. See, the, this is really thin ice that I'm going to step out on, but I think it's something we need to consider. The hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. Those who are truly hungry and thirsty for righteousness' sake. Now, there are some people who are hungry and thirsty, but they're not hungry for righteousness. They're hungry for something else. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. For what? for they will continue to be hungry. Right? I touched on this last week, didn't I? They will be full. They will be fed. They will be full. I'm convinced that the, through the power and the agency of the Holy Spirit of God, that those who hunger and thirst will be fed. They will be full. That, they, that they, will, they will come to these conclusions. They will understand greater things of God. Now, the, I'm, I'm, and I, this is very thin ice because I cannot tell you how many people that I've met over the years who've come up with the wackiest ideas theologically that they got all on their own, that they believe that the Holy Spirit told them. 
So there has to be a, a sense of a balance. That's, that, that, that's why, why, the, why I believe that the church is called to be in community. Um, and and to, have, to have, again, almost like a mid-rash type of environment where we can bounce some of these things off of each other. But what I've also found, too, is that a lot of people have given me space to develop my own understanding of who God is, my own theology, my own systematic theology, my own doctrine. Um, and I think we have to give people space to do that. I think we have to give people space to, to work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. And to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in them that he desires, to give them that, 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 that understanding. As I told you before, there is not going to be an entrance exam. There is not going to be a theological entrance exam outside the gate of heaven that you have to take and pass before you're able to get in. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, period. Thank God for that. Because I don't think there's enough for us to learn to obtain any, any, any form of righteousness. And often it is that we equate spiritual maturity with spirit, biblical knowledge, and that's not always the case, guys. They believed because they heard the voice of Jesus. That's what I want to close with. They believed because they heard the voice of Jesus. Give room for the Spirit to speak. Give room for the Spirit to teach. Give room for the Spirit to work. Let them hear Jesus, not you. Let them hear Jesus. Christ in me, the hope of glory, Paul writes about. Boy, I could go on for another 10 minutes without notes on that, just on that little verse alone. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Let them hear Jesus. Movie's out. A lot of people are talking about it. I either witnessed it firsthand or I've heard it. If I've heard some of those other stories once, I've heard them a hundred times, all right? So I probably won't even bother to go see the movie. But anyway, and it's probably a good movie, and it's basically Greg Laurie's um, memoirs, essentially. And I like Greg Laurie, right, all, for the most part. Actually, we have the same birthday. But anyway, um, early in the Jesus movement, it was all about Jesus. It was about Jesus. But it got sidetracked. It got sidetracked because it became about some other things. And I have found that the Spirit of God, if we want to be about other things other than, the, than Jesus, he will allow us to be about other things. They believed because they heard the voice of Jesus. They need to hear 
the voice of Jesus in our lives, in our speech, in our conduct, in our manner of life, not our opinions. See, I, I, and there's so many distractions out there. There's so many distractions out there that will not matter once you step into eternity. They will not matter. Why do they matter now? I'm going to leave you with that.